Good morning. I'm Dan Crocker, and you're listening to NPR News. Thanks so much for being with us today. Roughly 50 million acres of land in the United States is considered reservation land, held by the government in trust for Native American tribes. That's about 2% of the country. But that's a lot less than the acreage once set aside for tribes in the late 19th and early 20th centuries through treaties. Now tribes across the country are trying to reclaim some of those millions of lost acres. At the end of 2020, Congress passed legislation to return about 11,000 acres to the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe here in Minnesota. Across the country, county governments and religious groups have also given land back to tribal governments. And tribes are purchasing land with revenue from casinos and other economic development efforts. Today, we're talking about returning and buying back native land nationally and here in Minnesota. Why is land important to tribes? What stands in the way of its return? And where has this successfully happened? And I want to hear from you, too. What's the history of the land you live on? Do you have any questions about Native American land? Has your family personally benefited from owning land? Get in on the conversation. The phone lines are open. You can call us at 651-227-6000 or tweet me at Dan underscore Crocker. It's spelled K-R-A-K-E-R. Let's bring in our guests. Karen Diver was chairwoman of the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa from 2007 to 2015. She left that role to serve as special assistant to President Obama on Native American affairs. This spring, she became the first senior advisor to the president of the University of Minnesota for Native American affairs. And she joins us today from the Fond du Lac Reservation. Karen, good morning. Thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Dan. Thank you for having me. Chris Stainbrook is president of the Indian Land Tenure Foundation. The organization, based in Little Canada, works with tribes across the country to regain land within reservation boundaries and other sacred or important sites. Chris, thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you, Dan. And good morning. And good morning, Karen. So I think think a lot of people might assume that the land within the boundaries of an Indian reservation is owned by the tribe or at least by individual members of that tribe. So, Karen, let's start with you. Is that true? Um, Absolutely not true. Um, Through the years, um, various federal laws and federal policy um, actually precipitated the loss of large swaths of land within um, tribal reservation boundaries. Um, One of them was the General Allotment Act, um, which instead of holding land together as like a commonwealth, um, individual land ownership was pushed. um, And then anything that wasn't allotted was declared surplus. So you had huge amounts of land opened up for settlement. In some cases, the diminishment of land holdings within um, treaty-defined boundaries or um, administrative-defined boundaries dropped down to um, maybe 3% of what they originally started with to 20% in some cases. Um, And then you had private land being developed within the reservation Other lands were lost through um, policies where a non-Indian spouse inherited it, so it was automatically turned into private land upon inheritance. Um, 
So there, there were many reasons why um, land was lost. Also corruption on the part of the federal government, where you had Bureau of Indian Affairs um, officials regionally making decisions about rights away um, and other decisions that opened it up for encroachment by railroads um, and other corporate interests, forestry, etc., Karen, I'm curious, do you, I mean, when you're out talking to folks about these issues, uh, are people surprised to hear that so much of land within reservations is not actually owned by tribes? Yes, they are. And also just because it's, especially for people who aren't on or near the reservation, um, Mm -hmm. they just kind of assume that reservations are still intact um, and under the control of tribes. They don't understand that, you know, the federal government actually holds that land on behalf of tribes because the policy through the years was that tribes couldn't manage it, that it needed the federal government to do that for them. And it's only really been since the self-governance era in the 70s that tribes um, started taking more active management of their lands. But there, there continues to be barriers at the federal level. And we'll get into some of that. But um, so... This idea of buying back or returning land to Native Americans, I mean, it, it, it really seems to have gotten a lot more attention in the last couple of years. Um, and I'm curious why you think that is. I think that, um, you know, one of them is just basic, you know, social justice and racial justice issues that have come to the forefront. Um, much like in the 60s civil rights era, um, where we were having a national reckoning around this country's treatment of African-Americans. And as a byproduct of that, um, we also had a ton of equities um, around Native American civil rights and justice issues. The same thing is happening today um, with our look at, you know, what, what is this country's history towards people of color? How did we form this country on the backs of African-Americans and American Indians, in particular American Indian land, um, the various other policies, and, and what does justice look like? Yeah. Chris Stainbrook, uh, anything you wanted to add to that about why you think this issue seems to be, or maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that it's, it's getting a lot more attention in the last few years? Well, I think the the advent of the Indian gaming um, industry has allowed the tribes some amount of financial wherewithal to purchase land and and acquire those homelands that were taken, and I think that has elevated the public consciousness about it. Uh, Karen's right. There's I mean there's this whole racial justice piece moving out there. And and if there's a great injustice, it was the taking of Indian land in this country. And I want to, I want to maybe back up and and put this into some more historical context um, to talk about what has happened to Indian land. Karen brought up the, the allotment act. Um, And Chris, maybe you can go into a little more detail um, because, you know, the story of European settlement is also the story uh, as you all are well known, of, of Indian land loss. So, Chris, could you take us back to, I guess, when those treaties were signed and, and help us understand how much land was controlled by tribes then and, and, and talk about where we are today? Well, through treaties and executive orders, uh, there were 138 million acres reserved 
And in most cases, if you read the treaties, it says reserved for the exclusive use and occupation by Indian people. And uh, with the exception of a few acres for the blacksmith, for the school marm, and for the agency, all the rest of the 138 million acres were reserved for exclusive use and occupation. That lasted until 1887 when um, the federal government decided that the Dawes Act should pass and the communally held property should be divided into allotments of anywhere from 320 acres down to 40 acres, and um, those would be held in trust by the federal government. Now, um, in order to do that, they had to declare Indian people and the tribes um, incompetent to handle their own affairs, and that would last for 25 years, a 25-year trust period. That then got extended and and is still in effect today, where the federal government holds um, title to the land for, for the beneficial use of Indian people. Um, you could say that we lost the entire 138 million acres with the Dawes Act, but certainly and clearly we lost 90 million acres um, through the excess property that Karen spoke about, um, and that's um, it was open to homesteading. It was open to sale by the federal government, um, to mining, timber, railroad interests, uh, and so today we look at about 55 million acres in Indian ownership, management, and control. Um, but the title to that still remains with the federal government. The other piece of the Dawes Act that goes um, unknown by most people, unless you're an Indian landowner or a beneficial use owner, is um, the Dawes Act did not have a provision for inheritance, and that came a few years later, and it was decided that the land itself, the allotment, the 160 acres or 320 acres, would not be divided. The title would be divided. And so we've gone now through seven, eight, nine generations, and the titles have been divided into these undivided interests. And so on any given 160 acres, I think the average now is about 20 owners, um, but we've got some allotments that have as many as three and 4,000 owners um, making decisions about that property. And so that, that becomes um, a real impediment for it, the land's use. And um, we spend a fair bit of the foundation time on helping try and consolidate some of those undivided interests so that the land can be productive. So you, you brought up a few issues that I definitely want to get to. Um, but just to underscore, the, I mean, just the numbers, um, so 138 million acres um, were reserved in treaties, and now you said about that's down to about fifty million acres. About fifty-five or fifty-six, 55. I think, was the latest count. Wow. Okay. And something else and I that, didn't realize about know, the allotment. Go ahead. One one thing I would point out: it's it's hard to make generalizations because we're talking about five hundred and sixty some tribes, right. and and to make too much of a generalization. Um, you have some tribes that uh, uh, wholly own the, the reservation land, 
and other tribes. Um, Leech Lake's a good example, has maybe 4 to 5% of the land held by Indian mm. people or the band. That's an important distinction. Um, 560 sovereign nations, and there are big differences. I used to live in Arizona where I know a lot of the tribes there, Navajo, Hopi, own a, a if not all, or not own, but controlled at least a vast majority of their land. Um, Karen, back to you, and this is an extremely general question, but why, why, why does land matter? Why is this issue so important to, to, to the point where tribes are working hard to get, to get some of this land returned? Um, so that's a really big question. And I know I apologize. No, no, it's so it's all we have left. Um, and our ability to reacquire and make whole, um, what we were promised is, um, it goes directly to identity, um, and to culture. Um, we are so integrally, um, tied to place, um, you know, we are not different than as as a people from the land that we occupied. Our life ways are tied to that, our spirituality, our culture, um, hunting, fishing, gathering. Um, so that's really about having the governmental control of the tribes to caretake our relatives. And when you can exert that governmental control over your own lands, you can make good decisions about how it's used, how resilient you can make it in the face of climate change, land use and zoning. You can set aside cultural use areas. You know, for the Anishinaabe, it's about regulating um, water and air quality so that, you know, our relatives, the fish and the, the fauna um, and the wildlife are there to protect, protect those cultural life ways. So for us, it's really kind of uh, an existential issue of who we are as indigenous people that we um, caretake the land and, and try to make sure that it's healthy and whole because our healthiness um, and our beings are really tied to all of that. So that's, that's the balcony level answer to that question. And Chris, you know, I know you work with tribes around the country. What do you hear from from tribal governments, tribal folks, when they talk about why they're wanting to to buy back land, have land returned? Well, I think Karen just covered it. Um, it's really about jurisdiction and control. And, um, you know, if you're a sovereign nation, um, you should be able to exercise your sovereign uh, sovereign state um, on that property, and um, if the land inside the boundaries is um, owned in fee status or taxable status by and taxable by the county or state, then you don't have control of that land. You don't have control of the area of your jurisdiction, uh, and so that's mostly um, in the with the tribes we're working for and with. Um, it's about jurisdiction, and it's also about economic development. Um, if you look at the populations, especially in rural uh, America, you'll notice that the non-Indian population is getting much older rapidly, and um, Indian populations are young. And so what was once um, land considered in excess of Indian needs 
we need that land for housing, for economic development purposes, uh, for hunting, for fishing, uh, for carrying out um, the culture. We are talking about returning and buying back native land nationally here in Minnesota, why it's important to tribes, where it's happening. Get in on the conversation. Give us a call at 651-227-6000. Send me a tweet at Dan underscore Crocker, K-R-A-K-E-R. Would love to have your input. Let's go to the phones now. Beth in Minneapolis has been holding. Beth, I understand you have a question. Thanks so much for giving us a call. Thank you so much for taking my call. All right, so here's the gig. I own a booth at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival. I have recently heard that the Minnewakanton Sioux Tribe has purchased the land that was in between Highway 41 in Chaska that comes up to the gravel pit that is owned by Bryant Rock and has been held by the Melkerson family for years and years and years. The Melkersons wanted to ultimately tear down the Minnesota Renaissance Festival and mine it for the gravel and for the fracking sand. I'm hoping that I'm going to find the Minnewakanton Sioux come in and purchase that property so that that doesn't happen. The destruction of the show, along with the destruction of the land, along with the destruction that would come from the fracking sand somewhere other than here in Minnesota, will be devastating. And I would like to see that not happen. So, Beth, just so I understand, so from your understanding... um the 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 tribe has purchased the land from, I have from that heard private recently family that they have purchased the property between highway 41 and the Minnesota River and the Louisville swamp on highway 169 well let me let me throw this to i i don't know anything about this issue Karen or Chris i don't know if you're aware can you help Beth out do you any uh, understanding of the situation there? No, this is Karen. I I haven't heard of that, but I guess maybe as an editorial comment, you know, sure. the Shakopee Mitawakanton had a very small land base that they've been adding to and, and being in ex-Serbia, you know, I know that, you know, initially when they were acquiring land, there was some concern amongst the other jurisdictions around them um, because it was new and it was different, right, to have to interact with a new tribal jurisdiction. It shouldn't have been, mm-hmm. but it was. And Midwakanton was really a model for engagement with those other jurisdictions to say, you know, if you can form MOUs with surrounding jurisdictions, you can do that with us too. And where can we work cooperatively to serve our joint citizens? And the automatic kind of default that folks who don't understand Indian country fall back to is that, you know, tribes are going to acquire land and the first thing they're going to do with it is put up a big hotel or a resort or some other, um, you know, economic development activity. And while that's of interest to tribes as a part of an overall strategy of self-governance and self-determination, you know, what, what they ended up seeing in Shakopee was they restored prairie Um, and made sure there was conservation land that was appropriate within those counties that might have been opened up had they not acquired it to another housing development. Um, And so they found out that it could be a real value add um, where the tribe was exerting its authority, but also its values and priorities, um, that that can be a win-win for all of the communities um, 
around a tribal community. So I think it this story highlights that folks see tribes as responsible users of land, that their priorities are not against a broader public good, um, and that conversations and cooperation are really the key to looking at landscape scale um, activities um, within each of our communities. Yeah, and and Beth brought up, you know, her concerns about a potential mining development there. Um, and, and it's a broad question I have. I mean, a couple months ago, I, I, I read about the, the National Bison Range in Montana being returned to, to tribes there. And I, I saw a headline about that, about that development saying, quote, how returning lands to Native tribes is helping protect nature. And I wanted to throw that idea to you. I mean, is that is that a romanticizing of how tribes manage land or is there a truth to that in that tribes are looking to manage land perhaps in ways that are more sustainable? Um, Chris, I'll throw that to you first. Well, I think the, you know, I think it is a little bit of a romanticized notion, but at the same time, um, the tribes are where they're going to be and they recognize that as home and they are not going to destroy their own environment. Um, and, uh, you know, with the with the bison range, which was absolute classic um, interactions between the federal government and and the tribes, Salish Kootenai tribes, um, the tribes had moved the buffalo herd to Canada when they were being shot um, and killed in the late 1800s. They wanted to protect that herd, and so they moved it to Canada and and kept it up there for nearly a hundred years before bringing it back. And when the range was, the bison range was established, the federal government claimed that land inside the boundaries of the reservation and then refused to give management back to the tribes of their own herd and their own land. Um, And it took years and years of negotiation to get to that point. But, and, the claim was by federal employees that the tribes would come in and Indian people would shoot the buffalo and and that would be that. Um, nothing could have been further from the, the truth. With Shakopee, they have been um, good partners of ours in a number of projects, um, including preservation of um, cultural sites in the Black Hills. Um, they They understand... Um, culture at its at its very base, and so um, I I don't know the specifics of this the site that the caller was talking about, but um, I would be less concerned that the tribes are going to do anything that would damage water or land. Tomorrow morning on this program at 9 a.m., we'll be talking about the Boundary Waters Canoe Wilderness Area in northern Minnesota. More people are visiting these million-plus acres along the Canadian border. We'll talk about why people love the BWCA and how it can survive its growing popularity. And right now on the podcast for this program, you can listen to a conversation about climate migration. It's been a summer of drought, wildfire, and heat waves in Minnesota. But it's even worse in other parts of the U.S. That's why our state may become a destination in coming years for people trying to escape the impacts of climate change.
programming is supported by Pink Care, now with more than 250 drop-off sites in Minnesota where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Support comes from The Walker, presenting Sound for Silence on The Walker Hillside August 19th at sunset. Local artist FPA performs new live music inspired by a backdrop of films on the big screen. More at walkerart.org. This is NPR News. We're talking about efforts to return land to Native American tribes today. I'm Dan Crocker. Thanks for being with us. Our guests, Chris Stainbrook, president of the Indian Land Tenure Foundation. Also, Karen Diver. She's a former chairwoman of the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. This spring, she became senior advisor to the president of the University of Minnesota for Native American Affairs. And I'd like to welcome another guest who's going to talk about a specific example of land return. Benjamin Benoit is environmental director in the Division of Resource Management for the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. Benjamin, good morning. Thanks for being with us. I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Dan. Good morning. So I'm glad you're here, especially because I think Leech Lake really exemplifies a lot of what we've been talking about. So could you give us maybe a little background and, you know, especially for folks who aren't familiar with the reservation, talk about, paint a picture for us. Tell us a, a bit about the reservation and then talk about who owns and, and controls most of the land there. Sure. Uh, so the, the Leech Lake Indian Reservation is located in north central Minnesota. It's uh, roughly the size of Rhode Island um, and contains, you know, some rather large lakes. So Leech Lake, Lake Winnebagoshish, Cass Lake. Um <clears throat> Today, today the, the lands of the Leech Lake Reservation uh, are made up kind of of a checkerboard ownership. You know, the, the Chippewa National Forest and the Leech Lake Indian Reservation share about 90% of boundary. Um, the state of Minnesota is also another large landholder on, on the Indian Reservation. There's some fee land, so those are taxable private lands, and, and they're owned by both tribal and non-tribal, um, you know, persons. Then there's then there's tribal lands, so and they kind of fall into two categories. There's the the tribal trust lands, which are held by the Department of Interior for the Leech Lake Band, as well as allotted lands, which are held by the Department of Interior for the heirs of of the Alati families. So, um, kind of kind of a, a complex mix of land ownership. Yeah, it gets complicated. Yeah, and and the the Leech Lake Restoration Act is. Uh, it was an act passed last year by U.S. Congress, um, which restores 11,760 acres of, of you know, tribal trust lands back to the Leech Lake Band that were illegally transferred from the Department of Interior to the Department of Agriculture. And, and go ahead. Oh yeah, and I was going to say the um, and and how this happened. You know, uh, some of your panelists were talking about some of the, the federal Indian policy you know, that really broke up the, the reservation ownership. And in particular, from 1948 to, to 1959, kind of during this termination era of, of federal Indian policy, uh, what was happening is that uh, the allotted lands, you know, the, the kind of privately held um, trust lands for families, um, really they, they're treated like private lands. You know, if, if you want to do something on those lands, you, you need approval from the, the families, from the heirs uh, to do anything. And and the Department of Interior was sending letters out asking if these families wanted to sell their lands. And uh, if they got a yes, you know, they marked yes. If they got a no, they marked no. But if they didn't receive any um, feedback or any response, um, 
they would they would mark yes for the families. And and this was illegal. Uh, about seventeen thousand acres of tribal allotments were sold this way, transferred from the uh, Department of Interior to the Department of Agriculture. So that's really what the Leech Lake Restoration Act focused on was those illegal transfers in Cass County. And just to underscore what you just said, because when I learned about that, I, I guess maybe I'm naive, but I was blown away. So, so when the government asked folks if they wanted to sell that land, if they didn't hear back, they just assumed that meant that those tribal owners wanted to sell their land. Correct. And so talk about this. Um, so this, this legislation that just passed, it returns over 11,000 acres and this is was this land that was under the jurisdiction or under the management of the Chippewa National Forest? Yeah, the, these lands are kind of spread through Cass County, and uh, you know, okay. not all of the the secretarial transfers were transferred, you know, to um, to the Department of Agriculture. Some were sold privately, also, uh, but the legislation here focused particularly on the Chippewa National Forest lands that were transferred in this fashion. And, and that also fell into Cass County since um, Cass County was, was willing to not oppose the legislation. So, Ben, I, I read a quote from your chairman after this, this legislation was passed, and I'll read it to you and ask for your feedback. He said that this is one of the most monumental and positive developments to take place on Leech Lake since the first treaties were signed and the reservation was established in 1855. Could you talk about that and just explain again? I asked this uh, of the other guests earlier, but why why was this so important to the Leech Lake Band? Um, well, that's that's a good question. The uh, I think I think the history here and and your, that your other guests alluded to um, really through through the last hundred years has been a, a history of land loss, and and I think that. Um, you know the the arc of justice is long, and it, it takes a long time to correct some of these, you know, historical injustices. And and I think that this was a really big step in in um, you know the United States trying to correct some of these past injustices. There's you know needs that the the tribe has, um, in, you know, for housing, for economic development. I mentioned earlier that you know the Leech Lake Indian Reservation is the size of Rhode Island. Uh, today, mm-hmm. the, the Leech Lake Band owns less than five percent of the lands uh, on on the reservation. So, so we're we're really a a, a land strapped tribe up here. Uh, you know, we have a housing list of over five hundred people that that we're hoping to to be able to to use these lands to address some of those immediate needs. Wow, we're talking about uh, returning native land to tribes. Call us at 651-227-6000 to get in on the conversation. I want to go to the phones and Tim in Minneapolis, who's been holding on for a while. Tim, thanks for your patience. What did you want to add? Um, I just wanted to share some additional ideas with folks who might be interested in this topic. Um, One is that you can download an app to your phone called Whose Land and touch the tab that says, Where Am I? And it will tell you the names of the nations or tribes that <clears throat> used to live on the land where you are at that moment. And I think awareness is a big first important step for folks to understand this is an important issue and pledge to take action. Um, and then I also wanted to share an idea with folks that I'm sure I'm not the only one that's thinking this, but um, if we wait around for the government to properly address 
the land theft. And if we get serious about it, like all the land in the United States, you know, has been stolen from uh, Native folks who didn't own it, used it. It was part of their, it was for their life ways. And uh, now we draw, draw boundaries and say somebody owns things and we took it all. So uh, if we don't want to wait around for the government to take care of things, we can take things into our own hands as individuals and put our land, our properties in our wills to go to Native folks that we know and love as individuals in our lives. And if that's not the case, or even if it is, you might also pick a Native-run nonprofit organization and give the land to that nonprofit um, if you give your land to a nonprofit organization, it's not in the business of managing property. It will likely cash out that land and sell it and use the money for its mission purposes. Um, so if you want it to be remain as land that's owned instead of just be the equivalent to a cash gift, then you might want to research which uh, organizations um, have as their mission to own land and set aside land or use the land for affordable housing or whatever. Hey, Tim, I'm going to stop you there. Um, Thank you so much for that. I wanted to throw that to our guests, though. Um, Chris, you first. Is this is this happening? Are there folks whose maybe families owned pieces of land within reservations? Are they, in some instances, giving it back to tribes or willing it to them? Well, both both on reservation and off reservation. So we've we we have we don't hold land um at the foundation and if someone is looking at returning land to the tribes what we do is identify the tribe that is uh, that it belongs to essentially and make sure that we can get that land transferred to the tribes um the the one thing we always warn people who are donating land um, that's off reservation is that the tribe may or may not um, have an interest in that property um, because one of the things the tribes um, are very cognizant of is is being able to manage the land and take care of it once they have it in their ownership and if it's too far removed um, from from the area that they're in that can be really difficult, and we've seen um, cases of encroachment on properties that came back to the tribes. And so it's yeah, it, it's a delicate balance, but um, we we make sure that we aren't holding the land and that 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 it's returned to the tribes. Karen Diver, um, I was hoping you could weigh in on this. Um, you're obviously the former chairwoman of the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. Um, could you talk a little bit about you, when you were chairwoman about the tribe's efforts to regain control, purchase land within reservation boundaries? And was this a part of it? Was part of it purchasing or having, um, you know, folks donate their land or give their land back to the tribe within those reservation boundaries? Absolutely. It was a high priority for our tribe. When I first entered office, we owned about 24,000 of our 100,000 acres. And when I left nearly nine years later, we owned 30, over 36,000 acres of our original 100,000 acres. And we accomplished that by several um, different processes, which were all pretty unique. Um, first and foremost, we actively look for land that is available within our borders that is for sale. Um, and we have interest 
in purchasing it. You don't always have to donate it. We understand that private property um, people like that because it's um, a, a form of wealth in this country, according to the Western model. And we understand that it, they want to monetize that somehow. So um, when people offer us private lands, um, write a first refusal, we'll appraise it, we'll pay market value um, and acquire it. That has the additional benefit of sometimes we also acquire homesteads um, that can be turned over to our um, housing department where we keep the land, but the house goes into our housing program to meet that need. Um, we also worked with um, acquiring tax forfeit land um, within our borders. Um, at one point, we had acquired some potlatch paper company land that had already been logged. We did a three-year deal to buy back lands within our borders. Um, but the Car Carleton County was interested in acquiring some off-reservation land for a park, um, but couldn't accomplish it quickly. So the band purchased it on their behalf, and we swapped that park land with the county, um, Carleton County, to acquire some of their tax forfeit lands that were within our borders. Um, mm -hmm. We would hope at some point that, um, you know, one thing that citizens can do is encourage um, either state legislatures or counties or townships who have tax forfeit land um, within the borders of reservations to um, turn that over to the tribe so it can be managed adequately and, and be a part of our, our land holdings. So, you know, we also um, were aggressive in buying back um, those fractionated interests Chris mentioned that, you know, sometimes these old allotments have, you know, 30 to 3,000 heirs. Um, if the tribe acquires 51% of the interests, uh, allotment interests, um, it can take the rest by eminent domain and pay the rest of the allottees a fair market value based on appraisal. And we were using um, both our own funds and Cobell settlement funds. And that was a mm. decades long settlement with the federal government over mismanagement of tribal assets when they managed um, mining timber um, rights away. Um, they weren't adequately accounting for the money or paying it back to the allottees as appropriate. So there was a fund created that allowed tribes to buy allotment interest so they could consolidate those and put them under tribal control so you didn't have to negotiate with 3,000 heirs. Um, so all of those are strategies, and I think tribes are willing to be entrepreneurial. I think they're willing to be cooperative. One last pitch. Um, right now in the United States, we're looking at climate resiliency strategies um, and tribes are very much interested in, in being a part of that and not having that harm our access to our reservation lands and, as well as our ceded territories where we have the right to hunt, fish and gather. So we right. are interested in conservation strategies that preserve um, wilderness um, habitat um, provide climate resilient strategies. Um, the conservation movement um, needs to build its knowledge around indigenous rights um, on lands and uh, culture and life ways. And so we always caution them to be real cognizant of their covenants around um, conservation efforts in ceded territories that they don't um, impinge upon indigenous rights. I want to go back to the phones. We have a few folks who have been waiting. Karen in Roseville, uh, thanks for your patience. Go ahead. What would you like to add? Um, I would like to ask if there's any talk about a tax 
um, put on farmland when it's sold um, to the next person of where the t- there would be a tax that would then go to the tribe that originally uh, lived on that on those lands. Chris Stainbrook, would something like that be possible? Well, it's it's possible, and there's a discussion afoot in Minnesota to add a very small uh, fee, if you will, um, to every land transaction in the state and return that um, to the tribes and bands um, in the in the form of a of an endowment, essentially, and and making hmm. available some amount of of resources every year to look at um, buying back land on the reservation and other lands that are important to the bands and tribes in the state. Um, that it bogged down a little bit this year in the efforts around it um, simply because of not only COVID and all the attention on that, but also um, a variety of other things that the state legislature was dealing with. But um, we see in other states there are these types of taxes or fees. Um, New Mexico has one on mining properties that um, has a has a set aside for the tribes in New Mexico. Um, since many of those lands, there's some question about whether or not the tribes um, retain the, the mining and mineral interests. Um, throughout the state. Mm-hmm. So there there are these activities in different states um, recognizing that, in fact, um, the tribes have been treated shabbily at the state level as well as the federal level. Yeah. Uh, I want to get another call. Sarah from Brooklyn Center, um, thanks for calling. I understand you've inherited some land that you perhaps are thinking about returning? Indeed. I appreciate this program, and I've been waiting for this type of program for about three years. I inherited my brother and I um, about 40 acres of family cabin land and are looking to um, return it back. Um, I think my brother is interested in having it be purchased. You know, I personally would love to donate it. So the middle ground is making sure that the land is um, purchased um, by an entity that um, would ensure it, it goes back to Native individuals. What would the process be for an individual like me um, to, to seek out those opportunities? Chris? Yeah, we can talk to you about that. <laughs> you can give us a call. We, we have those discussions regularly. Um, you can also do a combination between uh, donation and sales in, in a way that, that that gives you a tax advantage. Um, but there's, there's a a whole myriad of ways it can be structured and carried out. So, uh, Sarah, that's the Indian Land Tenure Foundation. Look it up online, and um, and uh, hopefully you can make some progress there. Um, let's go to another call, Irene from Bemidji. Irene, thanks for calling. What do you want to say? Hi. Um, what are, Do you have uh, future efforts for land restoration um, beyond the Leech Lake Restoration Act? Um, are you gonna? Is it going to expand outside of Cass County or... Other other initiatives. Um, well, ben, going to happen, Benjamin. If you, if you're still there, uh, is the Leech Lake Band engaged? And I mean, I guess it's a 
First, you, is the Leech Lake Band also looking at acquiring more land? And then we can throw it to the guests, because I know these efforts are going nationwide. But Ben? Uh, yeah, so so the, you know, kind of as Karen described, the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe is engaged in a lot of uh, land purchases, purchased land acquisition transactions um, in a variety of ways. The the Leech Lake Restoration Act that passed was focused just on, on Cass County. So there's still thousands of acres of those secretarial transfers that, you know, the, the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe is considering pursuing, you know, after after we complete the, the Leech Lake Restoration Act work now. So so going through and compiling all of those legal documents associated with land parcels is a pretty arduous process, especially when you're talking about 11,000 acres. Uh, so once we wrap that up, I think we'll we'll certainly consider future legislation. More broadly, Chris, I know you work nationally, but but maybe here in Minnesota, are there a lot of other efforts? Are are all tribes pursuing this avenue? You've been listening to a recording uh, of a live radio show uh, on NPR well, News. You can hear Dan Crocker, yes, Moini, Chris no, Farrell, and other guest hosts during a live call-in show at 9 a.m. weekdays throughout the month of August. Looking for Carrie um, Miller? She's back talking about books and ideas at 11 a.m. every Friday starting September 10th. Through. Thanks for um, listening. There are some areas that would fit within that mode. In other places, it really comes down to willing seller, willing buyer on reservation lands. Um, the foundation also has a subsidiary, the Indian Land Capital Company, and we lend through that entity, we lend to the tribes on full faith and credit for land purchases. And um, at any given time, we we just don't have the capital to do it at a bigger pace than we're doing right now, but we have at any given time somewhere between 60 and $70 million in requests from tribes for borrowing to buy land. And so um, the tribes are active in, in terms of their acquisition strategies. And, and if it entails getting federal dollars in to help make the transaction happen, they're, they're willing to pursue that. And where it makes sense, um, pursue legislation as well. Let's try to get a couple more callers in. Barb from Minneapolis. Barb, thanks for for waiting. What did you want to say? I was wondering if your guests had um, had heard David Troyer's proposal that uh, national parks be turned over to the tribes to manage, and perhaps I'm not clear whether it was to own the land or to manage the land. If that is a possibility, if it's been well received by the tribes, what they know about it. It's a fascinating proposal, uh, Karen. I, I'm curious uh, if you've if you've read David. I know David Troyer wrote a piece in the Atlantic that got up a lot of attention. Have you have you have you heard about this proposal? I'm curious curious your thoughts on it. Oh yes, I've heard of this proposal, and in fact, when I worked in the Obama administration, um, we worked with Forest Service to. Um, for Eastern Band of Cherokee to do some traditional um, gathering in their um, former homelands that were now um, national parkland, forest land. So tribes have been undergoing multiple strategies at the federal level, um, and they're along a continuum. Some are just to ensure access, um, whether it's for hunting, fishing, or gathering, or ceremony, um, access to sacred spaces. Um, Then you have things like the Grand Portage Monument um, that are co-managed 
by um, the Grand Portage Band. And we were looking at that with the development of the Bears Ears National Monument, where there was a coalition mm. of tribes that were actually going to um, help them steward that land, pro- provide interpretive services around um, what those sacred places are and the history of the land and actually help and be strong co-managers. Um, and then, of course, we have the actual return of land. So, um All of those strategies, I think, are welcome. It really is tribal dependent upon their equities and capacity. Um, So that's the other issue that kind of comes into this is, um, you know, tribes have to be ready to take it. And, you know, they're much like any other governmental unit where, you know, they're running schools, they're running businesses, um, healthcare centers, etc., all chronically underfunded by the federal government. So, you know, the balance between growing um, what they have, um, but they're going to, they're at least going to want to be on that continuum. We're going to have to end the conversation there. Um, It's been a great hour and I really want to thank Karen Diver, former chairwoman of the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, current advisor um, to the president of the University of Minnesota for Native American Affairs. Karen, thanks so much for joining us. Chris Dainbrook, president of the Indian Land Tenure Foundation, also a guest today, as long as, along with Benjamin Benoit uh, with the uh, Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. This conversation was produced by NPR's Maya Beckstrom. Thanks so much for listening. This is NPR News. You've been listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. You can hear Dan Crocker, Nina Moyni, Chris Farrell, and other guest hosts during a live call-in show at 9 a.m. weekdays throughout the month of August. Looking for Carrie Miller? She's back talking about books and ideas at 11 a.m. every Friday starting September 10th. Thanks for listening.